0: Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today. I'm actually not live in the studio right now, but uh, I have not left you as orphans. I have something special for you, and since we're coming up on Stand to Reason's 30th anniversary this year, we're going to play for you a new recording of an old classic topic from our Ambassador Basic Curriculum series. It's called The Bible Has God Spoken. Here's part one. Hope you enjoy it. There's a song uh, recorded by Michael W. Smith. I think it was actually written by somebody else. Uh, But he's the one who popularized it. It's called Ancient Words. And the lyrics go like this, at least the beginning. Ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. I love that song. Maybe you like it, or used to like it too, until you heard me try to sing it, but because I, I, I think it just, the whole thing, not just those words, captures something about the significance of the scripture, the ancient words. But why do we need ancient words, or any words at all for that matter? Why don't we just um, kind of groove on nature and experience God? A lot of people say, well, I don't need your organized religion. I can just go down. I can go down to the Beach and experience God, just feel in there, which I think there's a truth to that. Romans 1, psalmist, other places in the scripture identify the reality of God's presence in everything that he's made. And, and I hear, I think that C.S. Lewis has a, an observation that's helpful because he said, look, if you want to enjoy the ocean, um, well, you can go and just sit on the beach and, and groove in the ocean." But if you want to go anywhere, <laughs> you need a map. And by the same token, you could go and uh, sit on the beach and kind of feel God, and that's easy, but fine, you're not going to get anywhere or you're not going to get far. You need a map. And the ancient words are the kinds of things, in Lewis's sense, that provide us a map. But they also provide us something else. And I, I, I want to introduce this second thing by asking a question. What reason... Can we give as followers of Christ to other people who challenge who ask us um, why we believe that our beliefs are actually true? I mean every religion consists of beliefs, every worldview consists of belief beliefs what gives us confidence that the beliefs that we have about God and Jesus, etc are actually true, and sometimes that confidence is supported by our experience so We might say, well, in my case, God changed my life, and that's one of the reasons that you ought to take what I have to say seriously, and we give our testimony, and it's an entirely legitimate way of arguing, and and Paul gave his testimony a number of times in the book of Acts, and um, that's one way to go. Now, of course, there are some difficulties with testimony, and one difficulty is, uh, well, when, when I was a young Christian, it was during the Jesus movement, giving testimonies was really popular then because uh, there are so many people becoming Christians out of radical circumstances. And so you'd have witches and warlocks and Satanists and rock stars and uh, drug addicts becoming Christians. So so this was kind of gave a lot of uh, 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 gravitas to their testimony. And you hear all these radical testimonies at the concerts. And then you started feeling like maybe your testimony wasn't dramatic enough. You know, it wasn't fancy enough. So you start adding to it a little bit, you know, and spiffing it up and making things a little bit more dramatic and exaggerating how bad you used to be or maybe how good it is now or something like that. One guy said, I don't give my testimony anymore. Why not? Well, I kept adding to it. Finally, I couldn't remember how I did get saved. So, <laughs> But there's another issue, too, another liability, I think, with testimonies, So there's a value to them. There's a liability, and the liability is... Christians are not the only ones who have experiences. We're not the only ones who have, tes- have testimonies. Other people have testimonies about how their point of view or their adopted worldview has made a difference for them. And so, uh, the, the, you know, what adjudicates between dramatic testimonies of competing views? Um, Mormons have a testimony. Mormons have a different religious point of view than classical Christians, If classical Christians have testimonies and Mormons have testimonies, but they have contradictory viewpoints about the nature of God, they can't both be right. So how do you adjudicate between those? There has to be a solid objective basis, it seems, or some kind of outside authority that does not depend on our subjective experience that helps us um, to to provide a, a foundation for our truth claims. And this is where the ancient words come in, because Christians have always gone to Scripture from the very beginning to, to substantiate their claims. Not only the early Christians, but the apostles themselves, and even Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't believe me about, from what I say, why don't you believe me? Because what Moses said about me And Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he was glad in it. And all the prophets bear witness, he said to the apostles after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus. So even Jesus himself made appeal uh, to this book. But then that raises a similar question. What reasons do we have to be confident that this book is the kind of book it claims to be, that is a book that is inspired by God? In, in in fact to make an appeal to a book nowadays as an authority is 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 uh is inviting disdain people say well you just get your ideas from a book you know or the appeal to authority ever since the 60s and the 70s when I became a christian that whole counterculture movement uh, remember maybe you do maybe you don't back in the 60s don't trust anybody what Over 30, right? Yeah. So uh, the idea of appealing to authority has fallen out of favor since then. But I want you to think about it for a moment because a huge part of our appeal is to authority. I want you to think about something, and this is something you can suggest if you're a follower of Christ to someone who pushes back on the idea of authority. Let me ask you a couple of questions. How many here believe that it's true that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level? Okay, pretty much everybody. I'm with you on that one. Okay, how many of you believe that our sun is the center of the solar system and not the earth? I'm with you on that. How many believe that uh, molecules or rather, uh, I should say, electrons whirl around uh, the nucleus of an atom? Okay, I'm with you there. Okay, now I want to ask you a question about those things that you think you know, those three things, and in fact, I think you actually do know them. Here's the question. How do you know them? Did, have any of you, you know, gone out to the beach here with a beaker at, down at sea level and uh, boiled water with, you know, the thermometer in there just to make sure that it's 212? I well, suspect not. I never have. Any astronauts in the group that kind of actually went out there and took a peek <laughs> at the solar system? Not me. And nobody's seen an electron scooting around the nucleus of an atom. So how is it that you know those things? I'll tell you how you know those things. You know them because someone else you trusted who was in a position to know told you. Did you ever think for a moment how many things that you you think you know and probably do know, you know because of an authority that has communicated it to you, of a book you read or somebody you spoke to told you about this. Think of everything that you know That happened before you were born or even before you were conscious, really, of what's going on. So maybe you're four years old. Before that, think of everything that is um, far away, places that you've never been, which is probably for most of us, most of the world. Think about everything that is so small that you haven't been able to see it, but you think you know things about that, or too large that you haven't been able to encompass it, but you know things about that. It turns out that probably... Most of the things that you know, you know by authority. You don't know by personal exploration or figuring it out on your own. So the idea of making an appeal to authority is not weird. It's not odd. We do this all the time. Now, there's a question, though. And the question is this. Is your authority reliable? Can you trust the authority that you're appealing to. That's the question we have to face when it comes to the Bible. So I want to answer that challenge. Do we have good reason to think that this book is from God? What gives us confidence that the Bible is God's word? And not just man's opinion about God and other religious topics. And there are, there are some subcategories to this challenge. For example, the Bibles have changed has been translated and retranslated so many times over the centuries. Understandable objection. The Bible was only written by men. The Bible is just a matter of your your own interpretation. So these are ways that that people have pushed back on the claim of followers of Christ regarding the authority of the Bible. And I'd like to lay some things out for you this evening um, and in the next session for your consideration regarding those issues. In fact, the material is is so extensive I, it can't fit it into one talk, so we're going to do a part one and part two on the question of has God spoken. It's the claim of Christianity God has that he's spoken in a way that we have an objective uh, authority, the kind that we need to answer our deepest questions about life. And in kind of setting this up, I want you to, to know that, that I think Christians have two allies here, one of them is an ally that implies to lots of challenges, and that is that the detractors have not thought that much about their view. That is, that people commonly hear things on the street, they've been socialized to raise certain objections, and they just throw them out, not because they've researched them themselves, not because they've thought them through, but because these are the things that people say against Christians, and it's been good to stonewall some, and so they just pick these things up and toss them out. So most detractors haven't thought about these challenges very deeply. And secondly, the ally, the second ally we have, is that the facts are on our side. To build a, a reasonable case in support of the authority of the Bible. It's not, I'm not going to offer a, a, a silver bullet here. I'm not going to give you a line of argument that it's going to persuade everybody. It's not the case. No argument really is like that. But I think we can make a very reasonable case, a cumulative case, um, to demonstrate that we have evidence that God has spoken in the Bible. And sometimes detractors will say, look, you think there's a God. Well, why doesn't he show himself? If only God would just speak and tell us about himself, why is he hiding? Well, the claim of the text is that he's not hiding, that he has revealed himself in lots of different ways. And one of those ways is that he He has revealed himself through this book. And we'll talk about exactly what that represents here in just a a moment. But uh, let me simplify this issue for you. I find that in dealing with a lot of issues, sometimes you can get down, if you can get down to the, the central concern, it, it makes it easier. There's a simple way of looking at this challenge. And that is, it can be reduced to a, a, a very basic question. What kind of book is the Bible? What kind of book is it? Now, I, I suggest there's two only two answers. It's either a book by men about God. It might be that. It might be just human opinion about the divine, about the nature of the world, whatever. That's one alternative. That's what a lot of people think it is. That's a possibility. It's in the running. It's a completely natural book brought to us by natural means, communicating insight that humans have that may be true or may be false. Or it's a book by God, to men in some way. It's either by men about God, or it's from God to men in some way. That Now, the second option doesn't preclude the involvement of men, human beings, I mean, in the process. The point is, though, what is the origin, ultimately speaking? Is it a human naturalistic origin, or is it a divine supernatural origin? If it's a human origin, and only a human origin, then we should see nothing but na- kind of human kinds of limitations, etc., in it. However, if this book is a book that has a supernatural origin, we, we ought to expect something else from the book. We ought to expect something of the supernatural. And, and that's, I think, what we find, and this is how I'm going to make my case, looking at the supernatural fingerprints of God, as it were, in the book or making a case in that way. But let me, let me ask one question before I get into the material. Well, what happens if I fail to persuade you that this book is not simply a book by men about God, but it is a book from God, in some sense, to men? That it's not just a human origin, but it has a divine origin. What if I fail in that? What follows from that failure regarding the truthfulness of the content of this book, by and large? As a worldview, as an understanding of reality about the n- people that it describes, what follows from that? Does it follow if I fail to show that this book is supernaturally inspired that the ideas in the book are false? No, that doesn't follow. I mean, there are books all over the place that are not supernaturally inspired but tell you accurate things about what happened in history, tell you accurate things about the world, and and may even tell you accurate things about the nature and the meaning of life and religious concepts, etc. So what I want to say is, though I'm going to make an argument, if I fail at persuading, if my argument doesn't go through, that doesn't mean that the ideas that reflect the core of Christian conviction are false. It doesn't mean Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. It doesn't mean that Jesus never lived, that he didn't die on a cross, that he didn't rise from the dead. None of that follows. It, it only follows that I fail To make my case about the supernatural inspiration. So there's a certain sense in which nothing's really on the line for me. There's nothing to lose here for me, because I don't make my case regarding Christianity based on my belief that the Bible is inspired by God and inerrant. I I believe it is, but the early church didn't have an inspired Bible. They had the Hebrew scriptures, but a lot of the Gentiles had no familiarity with that. And quite a bit of the evangelism after the first uh, 10 or 15 years was to Gentiles. And Paul's missionary journey went to Gentiles. And what did they have? They didn't have a Bible. Now, when Paul talked to Jews in these cities in the dispersion around the the Roman Empire. He did start with the scriptures there, but he talked to a lot of Gentiles. and What did he do? He gave them a testimony of a man, Jesus Christ, who lived and who died and who rose again. And this was a testimony of the truth of his claims about himself to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, the miracles that he worked. John himself says that he wrote the gospel in John 20 to give evidences of miracles so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and in believing have life in his name. So it's the historical legitimacy of the gospel accounts that make the big difference. But we can do better than that is what I'm saying. And this is what I want to suggest to you now. Has God spoken? Well, what do we mean by speak? And I I want to be clear on some terms here. When, When we talk as followers of Christ about inspiration, classically there's a definition there. What we mean is that God superintended the writing of the Scripture such that the human authors, using their own style and their own personalities, their own resources, you can tell Paul's writing from John's, they're different. You can tell Luke is different still, and Luke said, I did research to develop my gospel, gospel of Luke, etc." So all of that is in play. But even so, they wrote down exactly, and here I mean word for word, what God intended them to write in the originals. They wrote down word for word what God intended them to write. In the originals. Now, this is called verbal plenary inspiration. That means the words are inspired. To be inspired means to be God breathed. That means it's the it's just a kind of a colorful way that Paul put it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All graphe, all scripture is Theonustos, God breathed. It's the outbreathing of God. It's like the breath of God. And you can almost think of it like, and this is a picture that Peter uses in 2 Peter, it's like, like God's breath like a wind filling a sail that pushes pushes a ship along. And so our sense from some of these texts that describe it is that there's a concursive operation between the writer and God behind the writer. So we see the evidence of the writer. We see the evidence of God at the same time. And um, dozens and dozens of times uh, we see in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, thus Say it, the Lord kind of thing. When the New Testament writers, including Jesus, refer back to the Hebrew Scriptures, sometimes they refer to those texts as God's word, God speaking. Sometimes they refer to the text itself. Sometimes they refer, refer to the writer. These are all different ways of talking about the same thing. That's the claim. Wasn't written by automatic writing, by the way. Paul wasn't there in a trance. What are you writing, Paul? I don't know. It's in Greek, you know it wasn't that kind of thing. So the Bible makes this claim, and it seems to me any person concerned about the truth of Christianity has to take the claim seriously. So is the Bible right? How do we know that God has spoken through the Bible? I would like to give you six marks of the supernatural that I think are evident in the scripture. Now we're going to use our hand, fingers in particular, to kind of keep track of our six marks of the supernatural. So it's like six fingerprints, but the problem is you only have five fingers. We'll solve that problem when we get to that point. You'll see how it works out. Fingerprints of God, six marks of the supernatural on the text. What's the first one? You put up your pinky. Pinky is a reminder that the Bible has fulfilled prophecy, pinky prophecy. In other words, the Bible has predictions of the future that are precise and detailed and accurate. It's the only volume ever produced by man in which detailed prophecies relating to the rise and fall of not just individuals but entire nations is given with hair-splitting accuracy. Thinking right now of the book of Daniel, What Daniel does throughout that book in the visions that he has as he's a member of the court of Nebuchadnezzar and then subsequent leaders is he lays out ancient Near Eastern history, the flow of it, for the next hundred years basically, starting with Nebuchadnezzar and then the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire and and then the Roman Empire. It's very, very clear what he has in mind when these things are laid out. And indeed in some of the chapters there is details about political intrigue that are fulfilled with such precision that when detractors read it now, they say, this is so precise, it must have been written after these things actually happened. So there's a temptation for them to late date the book of Daniel. We have things like in the Psalms, Psalm 22, where the crucifixion of Christ is depicted in in very powerful visual terms, as if the Psalm is being written by somebody in the process of being crucified, looking down at his tormentors, this uh, some 700 years before uh, crucifixion was even practiced in the ancient Near East. And you have Isaiah 53, uh, another dramatic picture of a suffering Messiah, suffering for the sins of others. Um, incidentally, though, uh, for some time, there was a question about whether these documents actually came after Jesus' time because they seemed to fit his life so well. And this was settled forever in the uh, mid-20th century when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls found massive portions of Old Testament scriptures, the very same scriptures in question, that are dated by paleographic methods, by the writing method, etc., clearly to precede the time of Jesus. So there is no question in scholars' minds that those texts were written before their fulfillment in the life of Jesus. And by the way, even in Jesus' own life, we have prophecies that he made. He made it of his own uh, death and his own burial and resurrection. And we have prophecies that Jesus made about the destruction of the temple. This is in the Gospel of Luke in particular. And uh, that destruction of that temple happened in 70 AD. And one of the reasons we're, we're pretty certain that this Destruction of the temple happened after Luke's writings, is because we see the prophecy in the Gospel of Luke, but Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts um, takes us to about 62 AD to Paul's um, uh, first imprisonment in Rome. But there is no mention of the destruction of the temple that comes like eight years later. Why is there no mention of this? The reason there's no mention of it is because it hadn't happened yet. If Luke is writing late, putting words of prophecy into Jesus' mouth about an event that he knew had already happened, don't you think he's going to write it in the book of Acts to show that Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled? That's what a person who is fabricating these things would have done. But you don't find it in the book of Acts. And the reason is is that it hadn't happened yet, but you find it in Luke, the prophecy, before Acts is written, which means the prophecy is a sound prophecy. We have all these examples, and I've just given you a few. I didn't even mention the one uh, towards the end of Daniel, this magnificent prophecy called the 70 weeks prophecy, that when you calculate it out, 173,880 days from the initiation of that, the Messiah is to present himself after which he is to be killed. He'll be cut off. Well, those days counting from the initiation of that prophecy, which is probably the decree of Artaxerxes in 444 BC, you count those forward, that brings you to Palm Sunday, where Jesus comes dramatically to present himself to the nation of Israel. And it's interesting something he says on that day. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wished to gather you under my wings, but you would not come. And now he laments, because of what befalls them is going to befall them because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. And that seems almost to be a hint that something dramatic is happening on that day. And it was the day that was prophesied by Daniel some 450 years before. It also helps to explain possibly why the wise men from the East um, understood the signs in the skies and the stars to have something to do with the coming Messiah, because that's where Daniel was writing from. That's a bit speculative, but it makes sense. But chalk up one for the supernatural, supernatural fulfilled prophecy. Second ring uh, finger is the ring finger. And uh, when people get married, a lot of times the pastor will hold up the ring and point out that it's a circle and that it's meant to represent unity in the relationship. And so this reminds me that the Bible has a remarkable unity to it. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible is 66 different books. Um, It's written by, uh, you know, 40-some different authors. It has uh, diverse origins, um, historians, shepherd kings, military generals, tax collectors, rabbis, diversity of writing conditions, dungeons, battlefields. Jails, palaces, the wilderness—a diversity of controversial topics. Yet at the same time, when you study it, don't just jump around, picking verses that you like, or stories that you like. But when you when you spend time to study it, there is a remarkable narrative that unfolds, and it's not just a story of events, but it's a narrative of salvation. It's the story. It's a salvation history. Indeed, at uh, Stand a reason, we have a teaching called the Bible Fast Forward, and one of the things I do in that teaching in eight weeks is I go back to the beginning, and I look at the um, the origin of the story, the beginning of the story, and and how the story develops as the history of the nation of Israel unfolds, and how God makes covenants and agreements, like with Abraham, and then, and then with David, and then with Moses, and then a new covenant through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then we see at the time of Jesus, the advent of the Messiah, we see all of these, what appear, at least to the individual authors who contributed these things to be disparate pieces, we see all of these things coming together in a powerful, profound way in the life of Jesus. All of this unity, in a sense, converging. Now, keep in mind, these are authors who did not have the, the big picture themselves. They sought the, through the scriptures and, to figure out uh, what was going on. But it wasn't until it, the end when Jesus came that it became clear. And Jesus had to do some explaining about how that was the case, and then everybody saw it. We look back now, we can see it. It was profound. Imagine, for example, if I were to tell you to go home tonight and cut a piece of cardboard the size of your hand and paint on it whatever you like or leave it blank as you will and just bring it all in, the whole group of you, and just put it here when, uh, at the beginning of our next session And I went ahead and I just started putting these pieces up on the board, gluing to the board. And in the process of putting all these pieces that you just assembled, painted willy-nilly, serendipitously, provided an incredible picture of Jesus of Nazareth in mosaic, you would think, oh, my gosh, something else is going on here. Something supernatural is going on. And that's kind of what I'm talking about here. There is this... This, this supernatural unity, this plan that's woven through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation that no individual writer understood completely, but when added one to another like pieces of a puzzle, shows God's plan for the ages. Supernatural predictions, supernatural unity, talk up, chalk up two for the supernatural side. The big finger reminds me that the Bible deals with the big questions. That is, it it addresses the the most important things that we could ever address. Um, Where do we come from? Where are we going? Meaning of life. Does God exist? Is there an afterlife? Is there anything beyond the physical world? Is morality real, or is this just to make me up? What is the meaning for my life? What part do I play? All of these kinds of things. The answer speaks to those things. But It doesn't just address those things. And most religions, most worldviews, at least make an attempt to try to address the human condition, the nature of the world. They try to explain these kinds of things. Here's where I think the, 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 the Bible differs from all those others and puts it in a class of its own. The explanation that it gives, the answers to these broader issues that it provides, turn out to resonate with our deepest intuitions about the nature of the world. There there is a sense, and I'll give you some examples of this, but there's a sense, and many of you have experienced this, you you may go to the text as a skeptic. And as you begin to read these things, you you realize, wow, this is really speaking truthfully to me. The writers of this book understand the world. They get me, and they offer a solution that makes sense. I'll give you a, a couple of examples of this. The, the, the human condition is such that we know two things about human beings, and you don't need any revelation for this. <clears throat> we know, one, that some, there's something magnificent about human beings compared to everything else. Man, man is beautiful. There's something wonderful about human beings that, that's, that's above all the rest of creation. We're not just mere animals. Now, I realize that some people are confused on this nowadays, but most of us understand that humans are unique and they're uniquely valuable. There's a qualitative difference. This is why we uh, we gas termites, but not people. This is why we tell our kids, don't treat each other like animals because we're not animals. We're not merely creaturely. There's something special inside of us, but there's something else. Though we're beautiful, we're also terribly broken. We have a dignity, but we have a cruelty at the same time. And, 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 and it's a, an odd mixture and we look inside of ourselves, and we're even aware of both of them. We we congratulate ourselves on some things, but other times we feel awful about the things that we know we're capable of. And we watch the news, In any given evening, we see both in play. We see the, the beauty and the beast. What explains that? If we're just uh, molecules clashing in the universe, judgments like beauty and beast these are moral judgments, really. Virtue and vice, they make no sense. But if it turns out that human beings are special and unique in virtue of the fact that they are made intrinsically something like God, that they are made in the image of God, well, that that explains it. But if man is, even though beautiful, broken because he's fallen and he's in rebellion against his sovereign, well, that explains the other part, too. And it also explains something else. It explains how we can have hope for the future that things might get better because God is committed to make it better for us if we follow him. That's part of the promise. We intuitively know that that life has value and meaning. How so? Have you ever thought about talking somebody out of a suicide? Sure. Why? Well, we, we don't want the person to waste their lives. Well, look, at if the life has no purpose, then there's nothing to waste. There's no ultimate meaning to it, then there's no ultimate waste. But don't we have a sense that there's just something wrong if somebody spends his life living under a bridge abutment somewhere in a cardboard box? That, that shouldn't be that way. We say to people, you know, that's ignorant. Thinking that way, that's ignorant. Doesn't the claim itself imply that we ought not be ignorant, that we were made for something better? But what is this made-for stuff? Made-for indicates that we do have transcendent purpose, that we're somehow aware of what makes sense of that. What worldview can capture that particular thing? And some religions do, but Christianity certainly does. It explains that we are made for purpose, noble purposes. We've fallen short of it, but we can attain that with God's help. Problem of evil. You know, some religions... Can't make actually a number of them cannot make sense. A number of worldviews cannot make sense out of the problem of evil. Because they don't have the resources there. You've got to have objective morality to have evil in the world. What grounds objective morality? Moral laws need a moral lawmaker. So the the Christian text here, the Bible, makes sense of that. We all we know there's evil in the world. That's why the complaint is such a popular one. But the Bible make sense of that. People say, well, how's the Bible? How's the Bible answer the kind of problems we're seeing in the world today? I say, Well, it doesn't answer it, it predicts it. It's part of the world view. It's right there in the beginning. It's in the third chapter. <laughs> and the rest of the book, arguably, is meant to to explain what God is doing about the problem of evil. So the point I'm making here is when it comes to the big issues, the big questions, the things we already know that evil is real. That human beings are noble, but they're broken. They're beautiful, but they're bad. We have transcendent value. That there's purpose in life and all kinds of things like that. That there's an orderly universe that we can explore and discover and use for our benefit. Why is the universe orderly? Because it was made by a mind to be that way. That's the answer. So here we have all of the big issues. And all of the things that we normally think about as ultimate things fitting nicely with what the Bible describes about reality. So we not only have supernatural prophecy, we have supernatural unity, we also have supernatural insight into the big issues, which includes, by the way, an answer to the problem, that the answer to 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 sin and brokenness and rebellion is not denial, but it's forgiveness. It gives us a a way to put it together. I think here of uh, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, who said, how can you talk about God when you're kneeling at the bed of a dying child? I thought, well, that's pretty powerful. Challenge to Christians until I heard Christian philosopher William L. Craig say, what is Bertrand Russell, the atheist, going to say when he's kneeling at the bed of a dying child? Tough luck? Too bad? Because that's all he's got. But doesn't it seem that there ought to be more? Bertrand Russell, the atheist, the materialist, can't even call it tragic in a moral sense. No grounding for that. We can make sense of the problem. We also have answers that give a solution to give us something to say when we're kneeling at the bed of a dying child. The index finger reminds me that the, that the Bible is an index to history. It's kind of a way of remembering it. The Bible points to historical events, maybe another way of, of thinking about it. And there are, this is important for two reasons. First, a book allegedly given by God should get its history right, and most of the Bible is history. Most of it is narrative about what happened in history. In fact, there's a trade journal called Biblical Archaeological Review. Because you could take the Bible and you can go to the place the Bible talks about and you can find the places that the Bible describes. You can dig them up. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, they're everywhere. Now, I know the Book of Mormon, for example, and by contrast, describes events and civilizations that allegedly existed in North America after Jesus was in Israel and then came over here and visited those people and gave a second revelation called the Book of Mormon. But there is not a chip or a shard of pottery or a coin or a foundation or a single thing archaeologically to uh, substantiate that claim of the Book of Mormon. However, if you go to the Holy Land, you trip over chips all the time. You want ancient pottery? It's everywhere. All this stuff is there for you to see. But that's not the only significant here, significance here. What's important about the history of the, of the Bible, because some people say, look, it, uh, um, isn't the Quran historically accurate insofar as it touches history? And uh, I don't know. I'm not a student of the Quran, but maybe it is insofar as it touches history. That's not the point. Lots of books can be historically accurate. Nothing supernatural about that unless the events that are recorded historically are supernatural events. Muhammad worked no miracles. Jesus, according to the historical record, worked miracles, and not just Jesus, but we have this throughout the record. The major intervention of God in the Old Testament was rescuing the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, okay? The major intervention of God in history in the New Testament is raising Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. The point here is this is not a book about theological claims somehow out in the spiritual ether out there. This book describes how God intervened in history in ways that can be measured. In fact, the Bible is the only religious book that can look to historical evidence to support its unique theological claims because God has intervened in history. He's done things that left their mark in the dirt, so to speak. And it turns out the New Testament documents are the best historical documents of the ancient world when approached using the standard canons of historical research untainted by naturalistic presuppositions. I'm not saying that every historian believes everything in the Bible, because a lot of the historians don't believe in miracles or anything like that to begin with, and so they're going to be dismissive of those kinds of things in the Scriptures But I will tell you this, Will Durant, the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian of the best, most successful work of history in history, which is the 11-volume, The Story of Civilization, dedicated a whole volume to Caesar and Christ. And he says, quote, After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, character, and teachings of Christ remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man, close quote. This guy isn't thinking, well, Jesus never existed. You can't trust the history in the New Testament. No, scholars do. And if the Bible is historically accurate, especially the New Testament, this is what we have most access to in terms of historical assessment. It records, this record then records his claims to be Messiah and the only way to God. It also records his miracles and his resurrection from the dead, And if all of those things are true, then Jesus is no ordinary man. I'll tell you something about the resurrection. In the last 50 years, there has been a real shift in the academics regarding the resurrection of Christ. Now, when you survey all of the material that is written in the academic world about the resurrection of Christ, and Gary Habermas, an expert in that field, has done that. He surveyed everything, and so he can speak with authority about the basic facts that historians on the main agree to. There are four of them. Regardless of their theological convictions, either way, those who are trained to do history that use the canons of historical research, the four things they agree with is that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross and buried in a grave that three days later, that tomb was empty. They agree to that, that there were sightings by the apostles of something that they were convinced was risen Jesus Christ. And finally, this belief in the resurrection of Christ was the origin of the Christian faith. That's what launched the entire enterprise. The death of Christ, the empty tomb, the sightings, and the origin of the Christian faith. Now, Gary Habermas argues, I think, quite persuasively, that if you just simply accept those four facts that most scholars now accept as being historically reliable, these are takeaways regardless of what you think of the other things, you can reason from them to the truth of the resurrection because nothing else is an adequate explanation of those four basic facts. Supernatural predictions, supernatural unity, Supernatural insight, supernatural events recorded in history, chalk up four for the supernatural sign. Thumbs up. Most of you probably saw a gladiator, so you know what happened, what that means, the sign when the gladiators are fighting and one's down and the other's over him, they look to the emperor, thumbs up or thumbs down, thumbs up means life. And this reminds me that the Bible changes lives, and it does so in a profound and supernatural fashion. Now, I'm not saying that people can't change their life on their own. This happens all the time. But when they're they're just, this this is quantifiable. That when people obey this book, God changes them in ways that they could never have accomplished on their own. That we could never have accomplished on their own. Let's make it personal. We've tried and this is why people give their testimonies. It's so profound, and history is strewn with these testimonies. The powerful, dramatic turnarounds that God has has brought about in the lives of people who put their confidence in the things in this book. And this experience of transformation is is, is universal. It's the same around the globe. It doesn't matter what period of time. It doesn't matter what geographical location. It doesn't matter whether you make no money. You make lots of money, whether you're high or low in on the, uh, the social spectrum. It's it's it it, it trans, it's it trans transcends. Thank you. All of those boundaries. William Wilberforce, Amazing Grace. Here's a guy who followed those principles; his own life being transformed. And when he followed those principles and preached those principles, and people followed those principles, he ended ended uh, slavery in the United Kingdom. Supernatural predictions, supernatural unity, supernatural insights, supernatural events recorded, supernatural transformed lives. Put it all together to make a fist. That reminds me, there's our number six. The Bible's a fighter. The Bible has demonstrated supernatural survival through time and persecution. Jesus said in Matthew 13, heaven and earth shall pass away, my words will not pass away. Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Paul wrote to Timothy, his last letter, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, he said, the word of God cannot be in prison, and this he wrote from prison himself. But he knew that even though he was behind bars, the word of God would survive. In 1976, I traveled behind the Iron Curtain when there was an Iron Curtain, five different communist countries working with Christians that were being persecuted. And one of the things we did was brought scriptures for them. We got through two borders, um, the Hungarian border and the Romanian border. But then we came into the Soviet border um, Well, we had trouble. They found our Bibles. They weren't happy. They tore our car to pieces. They put it up on the rack, pulled the bumpers off, tires off, pulled the seats out, everything. They detained us for 17 hours. They interrogated us. We were able to get clear of that. They got all of our scriptures, and they still made it to the Christians. They just made it to them on the expensive black market. That's the way that works or worked then. In any event, it was so obvious to me that these people understood the power of this book. They knew the power of the book. They knew the power of scripture to, tra- to change lives and not just change individual lives. They were threatened by it because they knew that it could change nations. Now, the Soviet Union is gone but the Bible still remains. Voltaire, the noted French infidel, in 1778 said that in 100 years, Christianity will be swept from existence and passed into history. Well, what happened? Well, it turned out that uh, Voltaire was swept from existence and passed into history, and 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used his press and his house to print stacks of Bibles show that God has a sense of humor. Now, there have been many powerful, concerted attempts to destroy this book. Externally, through destruction, just burn it. And internally, through criticism, hasn't worked. The Bible remains the best-selling book of all time. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it a long time ago. They certainly have tried to. Chalk up six for the supernatural side. So I don't know about you, but for my money, there's a lot of evidence here that this book is not a book simply written by men about God, but is a supernatural book from God to men with supernatural predictions, supernatural unity, supernatural insight, supernatural index to history and the supernatural events that it records accurately, supernatural ability to change lives, and supernatural survival through time and persecution. Now, does this prove the Bible's inspired? That is from God. Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by proof. Is this a a line of evidence that will persuade everybody? No, it's not proof like that. Yeah, it's possible to be mistaken. I don't want to overstate the evidence on the one hand. I have tried to build a cumulative case, but there's evidence, and it's significant evidence. This isn't nothing. Our claim is reasonable. What other book can do this? What other book, reflecting on the nature of the universe and the true meaning of life and man's problem and man's solution and all that, what other book can give this kind of credible evidence? Our claim is reasonable. We have evidence of the divine authorship of the Bible. However, and now I'm going to say something that will probably sur- surprise you in light of the fact that I've just given all of this evidence, this line of reasoning, why you ought to take seriously the claim that the Bible's inspired. And here's what I want to say these reasons are not why people believe the Bible's the Word of God. That is why I believe the Bible is the Word of God, because I believed the Bible was the Word of God before I had those reasons. I suspect most people in this room believe that the Bible is the Word of God before you came in here tonight. I didn't, I didn't persuade you of something you didn't already believe, even though you, you, you didn't hear these six points before. Now, maybe this has encouraged you. It strengthened your conviction, but your conviction came from somewhere else. Why do you believe that the Bible is the word of God. I'll tell you why you believe. Because you encountered it. You you gave it a look-see. You read through it. The truth of of this book resonated with you through its pages, even before you had an argument. Something powerful was happening. When Jesus spoke, he didn't stand on the hill and say, all right, let me give you six reasons why you ought to believe that my words are the inspired word of God. No, he just spoke. When men came to arrest him, they, went, they, 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 they returned to their leaders empty-handed. The leaders said to the soldiers, where's Jesus? Why didn't you bring him back? And they said, no man, is, no man speaks the way this man has spoken. And when, when we go to the text with an open mind and an open heart, The power of this book is self-evident. It is self-attesting. Now, you might be wondering, well, wait a minute. I I have some LDS friends, some Mormon friends, that kind of say something similar about the Book of Mormon. But that isn't the same religion as ours. And my response to that is, this is precisely why a subjective test all by itself has a liability. And this is why it's valuable for us to have these other reasons because it helps us to, to, to be self-assured that we're not kind of barking up the wrong tree just on an emotional trip or because somebody played with our, you know, subjective states or something like that. No, we, we've got more. We've got good, solid reasons that the scripture is an objective truth, but at the same time, it's not the thing that persuades us ultimately which means if we want to persuade others, we can give them these reasons. But these reasons probably won't do the trick. What it might do is convince them enough to take the Scripture seriously and check it out for themselves. And this is why wherever I travel, I have in my traveling case some Gospels of John. And if I have conversations, I don't do this every time with every conversation, but sometimes I'll end the conversation I have with a person, and I'll say, you know what? Have you ever read Jesus for yourself? That's what I say. I don't say, did you ever read the Bible? Because most people will say, yeah, I've read the Bible. Well, they probably haven't read it very much or very carefully or very thoughtfully or whatever. But so I just say, did you ever read Jesus? What do you mean? I, I mean, the account of Jesus' life, the things that he said and that, that he did. Did you ever read through that? Let me give you a, a present. Uh, here's a book, a little booklet. It is, it is like a biography of Jesus' life. It was written by a man who lived with Jesus for three and a half years and traveled with him and was taught by him who knew Jesus very intimately and gives us a full accounting of what happened in Jesus' life. So you read it. I have never had anybody say no to me. And usually they thank me. They were, they were really kind of, uh, showed a lot of uh, gratitude. Gee, all right, thank you. Now I don't know if they read it or not. But it was the right thing to do. Because when people engage this book, it has a powerful abil- ability to cut through It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder the division between soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And about a year and a half ago, I I was talking to a French atheist named Guillaume Bignon. And Guillaume, like William, he stopped me at a convention because he listens to the podcast, but he told me his wonderful story. And how he wanted to disprove Christianity because he was interested in a girl who was a Christian, and he knew as long as she was a real Christian, she wouldn't be interested in him. So he thought the best way to deal with this is to deal with Jesus. That means going to the Gospels. And so he opened up the Gospels and began reading, and he he was taken aback by what he read. He told me the first thing he noticed is he realized this book, this document, this record is not myth. It's history. It was absolutely obvious to him that this was an historical record. He was very surprised to see that. The second thing that struck him is that Jesus was really smart. And he didn't know how to deal with Jesus. He was smart. He figured he could take care of this Jesus guy real easily. But as he read, the more and more he read, the more he realized he was being bested by this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's a Christian now. So I think he's well on his way to his PhD in philosophy and theology. I mean, the guy's, he never got the girl. Actually, found out that she really wasn't that much of a Christian after all. Once he got powerfully changed and transformed, remember, changes lives supernaturally. Remember, virtually everything we know with any degree of certainty, we've learned from a reputable authority. Somebody who we trust has given us the information. Spiritual truth, I think, is no different when we deal with eternal issues. I think any sensible person would want to back up his conclusions with an authority that had impeccable credentials. The real question here is, is the authority reliable? And in that regard, the Bible is in a class by itself. And by the way, when I say it's in a class by itself, everybody knows that. This is not news. Is the Bible the invention of men? Or is it God's unique communication of truth to us for our salvation? The evidence speaks for itself. Reason, history, critical analysis show us that to Paraphrase Isaiah, the critics wither, the detractors fade, but the word of our God, the ancient words of our God, stand forever.